Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. An asset class that has grown at about 20%. When people start talking about recession in the mainstream media, the real problem we have with the Fed is that they are equal parts voodoo and wishful thinking. I geek out on this conversation. These are not normal market conditions that we're typically used to. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. My name is Stuart Foley. I'll be your host, and I am joined today by a very special guest, Alale Tapchulu, Head of Credit Managing Director at Swiss Re. Lale, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. I am so excited. I can barely contain myself over here. I want to start this off the way we start them all, right? So, What's your hometown, what's your first job, and what's a fun fact? Hometown, Izmir, Turkey. All right. First job, analyst, Goldman Sachs. That was your first job ever? That was my first job ever, yeah. Wow. <laughs> there you go. It's a good start. <laughs> a fun fact. I really like Turkish sappy soap operas. It's my way to de-stress. All right. I've never seen one. That sounds like, <laughs> that is a fun fact. That's awesome. <laughs> it's a fun fact. It's a silly fact, but there's something about it. You know, maybe sometimes I get homesick, but I just love watching it. That's cool. So I want to talk to you. You've made some posts on LinkedIn lately, and I'd love to talk to you about those. But before we get going too far... I want to talk markets just a little bit. And, mm -hmm. and you have this thing you call a gray swan scenario. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say a, your gray swan scenario? Well, the black swans are really hard to call. So the gray swans, I, I, I think of them as things that are just so obvious when you go through your day job, day in, day out. But you're like, huh. You know, this is going to come and bite at some point in time. So my Grace One scenario is, and I've written about it too, so I don't, I'm afraid sometimes I feel like a um, broken record. But, you know, I grew up, I had two incredible mentors through my career. And I grew up under them really understanding fundamental credit analysis. So old school, here is your income statement, here's your cash flow, here's your balance sheet. And, you know, one of the things that that I really struggled with over the last several years with the central banks flooding the system and all this QE we've, we've seen is that I really feel like the fundamental analysis has gone out the door. Everybody has become a macro analyst. And the reality is like, it's so hard to call these macro calls, what the rate interest rate forecast is gonna be, what the inflation forecast is gonna be. And sometimes I also wonder like, does it really matter? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> but there's I get so it. much brain power like spent on this, right? It's, it, it consumes you on these projects. But nonetheless, taking a step back, I, you know, one of the things that I struggle with is because the fundamental analysis has just gone out the door with QE, all, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and et cetera. You know, we, we got into a regime where I find, you know, adjusted re revenue, adjusted EBITDA, performa adjusted EBITDA, community EBITDA. We all made fun of it. But like in reality, it's like those deals got done, right? Like somebody bought them. 
and it's you know adjusted earnings and it's it, it really is frustrating and then i in my gray swan area is you know scenario is that i think eventually when the liquidity the, the slush of liquidity we have and clearly there's still in the system because you can see sort of the the valuations are still pretty expensive once that gets out you know i do think people has to go back and think about the fundamentals like what is this company generates and i and i do blame our industry for it because we created i think the structural bias where income statement and balance sheet are the two statements people look at nobody actually looks at the cash flow which that's actually where the hidden gems are but if all of our deals get sold out adjusted revenue multiples adjusted ebitda multiples and then the that is, you know, you just look at the leverage metrics. Not a whole lot of people look at the the cash flow. So my great scenario, Swan scenario, is that when the liquidity goes out, I think people are going to realize there's a whole lot of capital that has flown into companies and asset classes where you went into capital structures with very unrealistic assumptions, and there is no way the company can grow into that capital structure because you think you bought it at seven times, but the number is so grossly adjusted that maybe in reality you bought it at 12 times, and there is no cash flow that can actually fund that company. And I think that will really cut through across asset classes. Now, when will that happen? I have no idea. And I think that's the struggle, right? Everybody always asks, what's the catalyst? I'm like, I don't know what the catalyst is. What was the catalyst with Enron? What was the catalyst with some of the other companies that went bust? You know, one day there's just less buyers than than sellers. And then suddenly the risk-off environment starts. Don't know. But don't you think that a lot of capital flowed into deals because the rate market in public securities was so low? That it just pushes capital to deals that now that that interest rates on IG fixed income are back to a, a level mm-hmm. where I can buy straight down the fairway fixed income and raise my book yield. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I don't have an appetite for some of those deals. I mean, is that a concern? It's less. So the incremental demand, it's less of a concern for me only because if you think of some of the especially on the private side, like these assets get allocated on a longer period of time, right? And on the public side, sure, you can decrease your allocations to high yield or et cetera. You can play around a little bit, but most companies don't really make big knee-jerk reaction. I think about a lot of the, if you think of sort of the leveraged loan transactions or even the high yield transactions, right? I almost think of them as like vintages. So there's a cohort of vintages that was really, underwritten under this extreme low rate environment that probably is going to disappoint folks, you know, should some of these companies run into to trouble. And I think, I thought you were actually going to ask me something. I thought you were going as like, well, how, how come people bought these days? Like, I always joke about it because I think everybody thinks they're smarter than somebody else. Right. And then everybody, I think, also thinks like they can just get off the bus before anybody else. The reality is like, and maybe I'm biased because I've said in the portfolio management seat, it's just, it never works out perfectly. Like it's, there is, there has never been a scenario in my career where I'm like, aha, like that, that's, this is why we were sitting in so much cash and now I can buy it. It's just, it, it never works that way. Like you always, you know, you think like, 
you know, you think you're hiding out on a relatively safer asset class, so you put your money in there, but then rates move out, and suddenly you're like, I can't move this block because I have massive losses on here. I am stuck. But then there's all these opportunity now. Suddenly everything yields, you know, let's pick up a number, 8%. So you're like, well, how do, what do I do with this cohort <laughs> that, like, I, I'm stuck? Um, and I think people sometimes don't appreciate how complicated and look at I just entered the insurance industry just about two years ago how complicated our operations could be we have flexibility obviously but I think some of the things that you know if you watch you know financial news it just sounds so easy but there is a practical oh. and mechanical part of it by the time the way the sausage is made, it takes time. So I always say, you know, you got to be about three steps ahead of everybody else in this business to be able to actually capture the opportunity set that the market may present to you. But it's challenging. It's not easy. Yeah. What do you think is not priced in right now in 2023? I mean, is there <laughs> something that you think is just is just wrong? that's not priced in or something that's priced in that maybe shouldn't be? So I think there are pluses and I think there are some negatives. So I think the, the, the pluses is clearly some of the major tail risks that we were concerned about perhaps at this point has eased off a little bit, right? So a massive energy crisis in Europe, sort of the geopolitics even taken, you know, a step worse, you know, China obviously being a shutdown for a much extended period of time. So some of these like big major tail risks that, that could be a very big risk factor have really slimmed down. I don't think they've gone away, but let's just say the probability has shrunk. With that said, you know, I struggle with the current valuation and the sort of the rally we've seen. And now I fully also acknowledge that you know, day to day, you can look at sort of the market movements and there's sometimes no good, it's not a good quality information in there. It's just the market is trading. It is what it is. And sometimes I think you just have to take a step back and take a longer view. It's hard, but I think it's important. And I think what to me is interesting is that clearly growth expectations are a lot better than everybody expected. And I think the risk is that we may be in a sustained rates, higher rate environment much longer than people expected. And then the, and I'm not even saying more hikes, I'm just saying we can just sustain the rates higher. And this ties into my gray swan scenario is that that can cause capital structures, your enterprise valuations shrink notably, right? Because it's entirely different scenario to buy into five, six times levered capital structure on all those adjusted numbers at an all-in 4% borrowing cost versus eight times borrowing cost with potentially some sort of a margin compression and inflationary pressures coming down the pike. Yeah, absolutely. And so you'd mentioned in your notes that you're always concerned about liquidity in the market <laughs> and the growth of markets has coincided mm -hmm. with bank regulation. Can you talk a little bit about mm -hmm that yeah i think i'm scarred from my sort of obviously it's an extreme case right but if you remember the financial crisis there were days you couldn't sell a million dollars in bonds yeah it was just like call us back some other time <laughs> <laughs> this is lolly this is the reason i'm gray uh, that, that that gfc is the reason i had no gray hair when that thing started <laughs> <laughs> 
it kind of leaves a, a mark, you know, in your in your mind once you go through that. And I think being also an insurance asset manager, I think one of the I generally joke, but I say like whatever we buy, you're gonna own it forever until it matures. Let's just run with that assumption. So there is no like short-term opportunity trades or like you know. I don't ever want my team to think, oh, we can just buy this for a short term because who knows what our limitations are going to be, whether it's the rates or regulatory change or whatever it may be, that you may just not have that flexibility. So my number one rule is like, you don't love it, don't touch it. (laughs) There is no like, I'm lukewarm, let's do this deal type of a negotiation. I think, so going back to liquidity, what I more concerned about is if you sort of look at the growth in the credit markets, whether it's just the IG market, the high yield market, the loan market, and then it extrapolates from that, right? Every market has grown. The financial plumbing is still the same. You still got to call Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Bank of America and say like, hey, I got to trade. And the, and the banks don't have the balance sheet anymore. Yes, I think people will now say like the private credit guys are coming in and they're like this new pocket that can take you know, advantage of opportunities or the asset managers have gotten so big, they can take these opportunities. But the reality is like, I don't know because when, like God forbid, I hope we never repeat something like GFC again, but in extreme stress environments, I don't want to bake. I don't want to bank on, you know, so and so may come in and and be the bid. And and frankly, you probably won't like the bid to begin with. Right. But that old transition mechanism through the brokers had just really, it really is the same pipe. And if not, if smaller pipe, but the assets that we now deal with is multiples of it. So finding the next liquidity bucket is going to be challenging. And I think it's it's also challenging for, you know, probably smaller guys too. Like, you know, if you have a limited balance sheet, who's going to tap it? <laughs> right. And under duress, everybody gets alligator arms, right? I mean, yeah. everybody's like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't, you know, oh, yeah, I had a bid yesterday, but I don't, not today. Right. Yeah. It's like, and it dries up quickly, right? Yeah. But the best thing about being an insurer is that, you know, I think for our industry, I see generally those those markets as an opportunity because, you know, unless something has gone wrong awfully, like you shouldn't ever be a fourth seller. And I think that's an opportunity for the industry, but you just have to have your ducks in order such that you do have some optionality within your cash position, et cetera, where you can capture those opportunities. And I think that just requires, you know, a solid investment process and a good planning. What about, can you talk a little bit about, and I don't know if this is where quite to go here, but you mentioned some of the many crises that we've seen, crypto, China real mm-hmm. estate, pressure on REITs. What lessons are there in those? I think the lessons are, there is definitely leverage in the system. And I think there's also lessons of where, what I talked about again, my great gray swan scenario, where you can see there was so much liquidity that the liquidity waste was chasing poorly structured deals. So China offshore real estate, you can look it up, keep well agreements. It is the worst agreement on earth. Why on anybody, Why would anybody sign on on that is mind boggling. Some of the EM renewables deals, we've seen pretty poor structures as well. 
so those are like poorly structured deals, which, you know, that's the emerging market world. I can assure you it doesn't take much than a few, you know, Googling search or you can look at some of the Bloomberg news. You can see that uh, we see poorly structured deals in our own markets. You can look at the leveraged loan market that everybody looks at. You can look at the high yield market. There are lots of poorly structured deals that just kind of float around. And I think what happens is what you saw with some of like China real estate, et cetera, is that when the capital gets pulled and it comes under the stress, it exposes all these weaknesses, right? So again, that ties onto my grace one. It's just the question is, as the liquidity comes out, whether we're going to get exposed or not. South Korea, I don't know how many people have seen it. I should, I thought it was absolutely fascinating, actually. This happened at the end of October. It's a double A rated country. They almost had a, like a mini GFC where there was a default on a loan and basically the CD market, the CP markets stopped functioning. The rates went on and basically the government had to throw the kitchen sink at it to sort of re, you know, make the market function again. Now, that tells you that there is definitely leverage in the system. <laughs> For sure. And everybody knows and everybody would say, like, if you read it, Southside Research, everybody says, well, this is a very leveraged economy. You're like, yes, clearly it is. But it's also interesting that it's a double A rated country. Like, why are these things happening? I, I would have maybe I'm naive, but I would just say if you're double A rated, like I would assume these things shouldn't really happen. Like your your system should not stop functioning, your financial system. So to me, why well, I guess what I'm going with this is that everybody thinks about the GFC, and I think GFC is very, very different. I think the GFC, the biggest difference is people bought, bought products that were worthless. So I think this is different. I'm not saying people are buying products that are worthless. I'm saying people are probably substantially overpaying for things, either because they're trying to chase yields or for whatever reason it may be. I think that's a very different proposition. And then when people compare with GFC, one of the other sort of selling points that we hear is that everybody says, well, Everybody was so leveraged during that time that leverage no longer exists. And that, I think, what I would push back, leverage definitely exists in the systems. It's just perhaps got sliced and diced and got pocketed away. And until we see the rubber band really stretch, we may not see the extent of it. And I think some of these... I guess you can call them confirmation biases where I just see, you know, we just spit these things around and we repeat them over and over again. And I, sometimes I feel like it's make-believe, like there's got to be leverage in the system because, you know, if I'm seeing poor deals getting circulated everywhere, I can't be the only one because I probably see only a fraction of the deals that gets done. Yeah, so let's just change gears just a second. You've said in other interviews the importance of networking. Mm -hmm. And you are on the board of IWIN, which mm -hmm. is an organization that we strongly support, the Insurance Women's Investment Network. You don't have to be a woman to join. I'm a member and, and proudly so. So can you talk a little bit about IWIN and what they're doing and, and how you view networking and how you network and all of that? Mm -hmm. So the, I'll, I'll start with the IWIN piece. So our goal is to get women in insurance investment management together. Get to know each other. We probably all struggle with similar things, have a discussion, and then work with our partners like yourself to host events where we continue our education 
they could be educational events, they could be market-related events, and then also continue networking, right? This is like a snowball effect. It's absolutely free. <laughs> There's no membership fees or anything. So if anybody is interested, please do sign up for it. That'll be fantastic. Networking. So networking, I think I've gotten better at it over the years. It really, I find how our industry works. I find that it's through networking is the way you get your name out, the way you can be a contender for bigger jobs, the way you can be a contender for being a mentor. And also, I think it's the way you learn more, see what your peers are doing. I'm quite shameless in one thing, which is if you are doing something that's exceptionally good, I have absolutely no shame in replicating that on my side. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. If you figure out something that works, that achieves results, it's, whether it's an investment process, an organizational truck structure, the way you do, whatever it may be, I am totally on board with it. I will give the person credit or the company, but I will totally replicate it. And then I've done it multiple times. And the way you get those information is through networking. Just absolutely, you got to talk to people. The key is you got to be open. And I think that's where people struggle. I think, and I don't know if this is culturalism because I'm Turkish, so maybe I approach it differently. I think the moment you approach networking transactional, it's dead on arrival. I think that's really insightful. I think many people approach it transactional. Yeah, like like I'm looking for a job at this place. Do you know anybody? Yeah. I always tell my students, build your network when you don't need it. Yeah. Right. Don't build your network only when you're looking for a job or only when you're trying to sell an account or whatever. It's important, right? To, I mean, and I think Iwin does an amazing job, and you know Sarah Marshak at Wellington just does a, mm -hmm. an amazing mm -hmm. job, and Laura at BlackRock and and others. I yep. mean, you know Sarah Bonesteel at Prudential is on their board, and and I find that the folks who are involved in an organization genuinely want to help each other. You know, one of the things we've tried to do is we do events sometimes with CFA societies and, you know, to get IWIN involved, because to your point, it is free and there's not a full-time staff. And so, you know, whatever we can do to help to help promote your goals and objectives. But I also think, too, it's about making folks who are younger in their careers, earlier in their careers, aware of the opportunity set, yep. right? I mean, coming exactly. out of school, I can't imagine that you're thinking, I got to get to Swiss Re. Well, also, I, I got to get into an insurance company is a whole nother thing, right? <laughs> right. And I can't tell you how many, you know, it's like, how did you get in? You know, and, and the answer starts with, well, I never thought I'd be in insurance, like always. Yeah. Right. And I just think it's, <laughs> and I, I do think that it's important to have those, you know, to be able to reach out and bring people along and, and share your knowledge. And I mean, your willingness to hop on this podcast with me is really like a prima facie case of your willingness. I mean, you're- That's super kind. <laughs> you've been all over major news outlets and I appreciate that. And you've been super open about it. And I want, I want to ask you a question. You were, you were quoted as saying, because I'm gay, I felt my successes were always discounted by my family. Can you unpack that and talk a little bit about it? Oh, boy. Um, so actually, this ties into the whole media story. So obviously, so one of, you know, you know, my family struggled with it. They've come a long way. But it's one of the always challenges where 
you know, my family would say things like, well, if you were just back home, you know, you you could be like so much more successful. And I'm like, I'm doing pretty okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, ba- based on my vantage point, you are, Lolly, honestly. <laughs> Everything then, seems to be going good for you in my mind. And I also didn't say it's like, but I don't want to come home. Like, I don't, and I don't want to get compared to so and so. Like, there's no, there is no end to comparison. And I know we always do it. Like, you're like, ah, like, did you hear so and so got this promotion? And it's a human nature. I get it. But one, it's not really helpful. And two, it's just, there's no end to that. You can, you can waste so many hours to it. So, but of course, like it's a, maybe it's a cultural thing. You know, my family does that comparison on and off. And I, it's in my successes has always been, you know, discounted. It's part of it. I think they still don't understand what I do. So I think, you know, the first, I think they thought I was a, I was a bank teller uh, <laughs> while I worked at Goldman Sachs and now I moved to an insurance. So they probably think I'm an insurance salesperson knocking yeah. like doors, but joking aside, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm in this field that it's, it's hard for them to understand what I really do. And then I think if you add in my personal life, it's, it's kind of for them just seems like odd. If you want to give them my email, I will attest to the fact that you're a badass in this business. <laughs> that, that's very kind. Actually, the, the best thing that happened to me, and I owe Bloomberg this, is uh, once they, I started getting on Bloomberg, it actually earned me the, the seal of approval from my family. They were like, huh, media thinks you're good. You must be good. Yeah. <laughs> and it was fascinating. Like, it was just yeah. eye-opening. You're like, nothing has changed about me. Right. I just now happen to have makeup on and I'm on TV. <laughs> just, hey, listen, wait till they hear this podcast. They'll be, they'll be even, <laughs> you think Bloomberg was impressive. Just wait till they hear exactly. this. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. So you posted, um, you posted on LinkedIn some notes that your wife oh, my left wife you. my wife left me? <laughs> when I know you had it, you had a family emergency and she had to go out of town for a while. And there was like this list of stuff that like trying to take care of the kids and like, I can attest to the fact that if I was left that list, those it would not have been okay, right? And you really expressed your gratitude when you put it I out there. I love the list. I was yeah. like, and, and I, I told you got to tell like, tell tell our audience a little bit. Just tell them about yeah, the sure. list, and then they can look at my LinkedIn post. It basically, you know, my wife had a family emergency; she had to go home, which is Oregon, and we don't have any family support. So my family lives in Turkey. Her family lives in Oregon, so on the East Coast, we 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 have no family support. So then I need to stay at home, take care of two kids, and I have two kids: a teenager and a younger one. And she literally write me a prescriptive to-do list because, you know, just like in any relationship, she takes on more of the house stuff. And she's a lawyer. She works. But I, I take on some of the other tasks. But our sort of house duty sharing is probably more like 80-20, 80 falling on her. And there are things that I have absolutely no clue, like what medication our child takes or like where would I find simple things in the house? Like, honestly, I have no clue. And I can't be the only one. So whoever is listening to this one, I'm pretty sure you'd like there's a few of you that are like me. One of the people, one of the people listening like that is me. <laughs> to do list, right? Like Monday at this specific time, school drop off, school pickup, and you know, our teenager has you know this doctor appointment or this, and it just goes on and on. But the best part for me was you know her highlighting that my six year old needs a bath. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and I, because 
I would totally forget about it, right? She's like, needs a bath. And it's like all in caps and like underlined with a star. <laughs> and and what's even funny is like, you know, we did the bath. And then she came like literally on day seven. And I forgot on that night. And she's like, did I need to write that it's a recurring event? <laughs> That's awesome. And, and then I was like, yeah, but I'm like my six-year-old say she like bathes like in, in every one and a half weeks. She's like, that is a tall tale. <laughs> That's I amazing. Like, hey. I can't believe how fast this has gone. We're coming up on the end of this thing. And I, I guess I'll go back to, you know, a question that, that I ask a lot of people, right? So you went to Mount Holyoke, right? Is that right? Yes. Yep. Do you remember your graduation day? I do. So at... I was a professor for a while and, and I sat through a lot of graduations. And so I'm going to paint this picture for you. So they call your name. They mispronounce your last name, obviously. Uh, they and, actually and, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've been practicing for a month. So you go across the stage, they hand you your diploma, you get a handshake and a quick picture and down the stairs you go. And at the bottom of the stairs, you run into you today. What advice do you give your 21-year-old self? And by the way, things have worked out pretty well for you. So I'll start with this. I mean, things worked out pretty well for me. Uh, I think every life has valleys and peaks, right? I've also been quite open about mental health and a couple like how I broke down too. So um, it's no secret. I think I probably would say just keep plowing through. Just have the self-confidence. Don't self-doubt. I love that. I've been very open with mental health also. Oh, cool. What is that? You got to explain it because nobody's going to know what that yeah, is. Yeah, it's, um, I posted, I've got a, a 988 and a semicolon tattooed on my forearm. And, um, you know, the 988 is the National Mental Health Crisis Hotline wow. number. Yeah. Right. I think being able to take the stigma away from having a conversation about mental health is really important. And I, yeah. I think it's, you know, it's been a, you know, a part of my life and it's, I've been very open about it. You know, I think we all face our challenges and we all have those yeah. things, but, you know, to just keep taking the next step, right? Yeah. I think it's really important. Knowing to ask help is, is really important. And then I know in our field, at least I find people see it as a weakness because it's so competitive, but our business actually also, and I can only speak to this, like our industry, like financial services, because that's the only place I work. So, you know, I don't want anybody to think uh, it's only in our industry this happens. It obviously happens everywhere, but I can only speak to my experience. My experience suggests that if you let sort of the, the stress of the markets and the PNL generation, all these things consume you, it will chew you out and spit you out and you will have no soul, nothing left, which I think brings me to say is it's important to know when to quit. I think it is equally important to know to ask help. And then if, and I know this is an incredibly privileged thing to say, but if you have the ability picking the right employer and the right co corporate culture, I think it's critically important. I think it's really insightful, really insightful. You have exceeded, I had, massive excitement and <laughs> and ex expectations for this podcast and you have handily exceeded all of it. So that's really kind. Now, you know, I, I can talk forever. No, it's great. And I mean, I, you know, I, I'd love to have you back. 
You're the real deal. It's very kind, Stuart. Thank you. You know, thanks for being on. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's I know you you got a thousand things going on and just thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We have been joined by Lale Top Chuaklu, Managing Director and Head of Credit at Swiss Re. Lale, thanks for being on. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email me at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, review us, and like us on Apple Podcast. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Mm-hmm.